You're listening to Ask Alice, hosted by Alice Chernock, a licensed professional counselor in Birmingham, Alabama. Ask Alice is part of the Rooted Network family of podcasts. And for more grace-filled, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated resources, be sure to find Rooted on the web at www.rootedministry.com. Good morning, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Alice. It's great to be with you on this Wednesday or Sunday or, I don't know, March, June. What month are we? Who knows where we are at this point in life? Regardless, I'm glad we're back together again. We have gotten some great questions that have come in over the last few weeks, especially in light of all of the coronavirus stuff. And so I want to dive right in and start tackling some of those. I know that our time with our family has been increased dramatically, and so we're seeing different dynamics within our family that probably we've never noticed before, or at least not to this extent. Um, So thinking about specifically with our kids, what we're seeing is what makes them tick and what really ticks them off. So I want to just dive right in to that. You know, I'm thinking about different sibling examples from the Bible. We have Cain and Abel, and that relationship didn't work out so well. And Jacob and Esau, and that relationship was really tough too. Um, Joseph, his brother, sold him into slavery. That's not so great. We have a lot of examples in Scripture of really hard sibling relationships, okay? So I do want to spend some time talking through it and and thinking through how can we make the most of our own family relationships, knowing that even in scripture, there are examples of really, really tough relationships, all right? Now, I also want to give a disclaimer because I get asked the question all the time, do your kids ever fight? You probably have the best kids on earth and nothing ever happens at your house. And I will say firsthand, I have wonderful kids, all right? Hands down, I have wonderful kids. However, we're all sinners, okay? So I just want to throw that out there that I am absolutely in this boat with you of trying to navigate the waters of my kids' relationships and how to help them develop friendships and understand each other better and how we as a family can be more effective, okay? So The first question that we are going to go into today is from Mary Ellen and Dan in Chicago. They wrote, Due to COVID-19, our twin daughters are back home from their separate colleges. At first, our teenage son was glad to have his sisters back, but we have noticed that each of our kids has slipped back into certain roles they seem to play with each other. One child is helpful and pleasant. One child appears to enjoy provoking everyone. And one child seems to disappear anytime there is conflict or a chore to be done. My wife and I have noticed, however, when we are with each child individually, they are much more well-rounded and pleasant individuals. Since we are home together for an indefinite period of time, how can we help our children step out of their roles and be their whole selves when our family is together? All right. That's a great question. And I think a lot of the a lot of us are struggling with that, seeing how the family interacts. And I liken our families to an ecosystem. All right. 
Think about an ecosystem that you learned when you were growing up, whether it's the desert or even an aquarium, and how the plants and the animals and the air and the water, all of these different elements work together, and they work best when they are all in balance. And families are the exact same way. So our families need to be in balance for them to be most effective. Now, listen, that is just great and swell, but let's be real. We live in a fallen world, all right? So naturally, our families are going to be fallen too. So I thought that it might be helpful, Mary Ellen and Dan, to discuss what our family systems therapists have identified as the main family roles that our kids tend to play, all right? So I'm wondering which of these that your own kids might be identifying with, because I think that if we can identify these different roles and we have a name to them, it makes it so much easier for us to be able to tackle the roles knowing what exactly we're dealing with, okay? So I ask parents when they first come in, who's who in your family? And I ask you that too. If you were to give a one or two word adjective description of each person in your family, play the who's who game. Who's the silly one? Who's the fun one? Who's the serious one? Who's the tough one? Who would you say are the different roles that different family members in your, in your group What do they play, all right? Now, the ones that have been universally identified are these, and I'm gonna talk about four of them, even though there are a few more that are sort of out there, but the four main ones that I wanna go over today. The first one is, the first role is considered the hero. This is the hero child, all right? Now, on the outside, this child looks perfect. They look like they can never be wrong, They get all kinds of awards and praise from the world. But really, if we were to peel back the layers, this child, the hero child, is absolutely petrified of failing. And the whole family system goes along with this hero child because it helps the family feel like they are not so bad. Like, oh, well, see, at least we have a doctor in the family. All right. So the hero gets praised for all of these accolades because it helps the family have something to sort of hang their hat on. And now the hero really likes this role because he gets all kinds of attention and power from it. All right. But the, the detriment is that it, it creates this system of perfectionism and that one person is set up on the pedestal, which is never okay and it's never healthy in a family system or in any system, but definitely not for our kids. For us to have one kid is sort of understood as the hero child, all right? Now listen, I'm not saying that these roles are point blank outright. I believe that a lot of times these roles are very unconscious, subconscious, unknowing Uh, roles that we have put our kids into or that our kids have adopted. And I don't think that it's something that, you know, we're going to write on the refrigerator that, you know, so-and-so is the hero child. But I think it's really helpful as parents for us to just kind of take a deep dive into what's going on underneath the surface and see who's who in that kind of context. All right. So that's the first one. We have the hero child. Now, 
The second child that we have is considered the scapegoat, all right? Now, the scapegoat is the one who has been labeled as the bad kid or the difficult one or the problem child, all right? This is the one who's just infamous, infamously known as the black sheep of the family, all right? They typically come across as, as angry and impulsive because they feel like nothing they do is ever good enough, whether it's an award that they achieve that's not good enough or whether it's um, cleaning the kitchen. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't right. Nothing is ever right. All right. And so they see this this sense that it doesn't matter what I do. I'm constantly seen as kind of a screw up. All right. Now, what we don't see is that the scapegoat is actually deeply, deeply hurt. The anger is a mask for that hurt. All right. They actually feel a ton of shame and rejection for who they are and the role that they play within the family. Now, It works for the family as a whole to have a scapegoat. Otherwise, we wouldn't have one. But for the family to have a scapegoat, everybody else can sort of band together in order to, like, fix that person or or at least bond over how poor their life choices are or how bad their attitude has been. So it's really easy for families to adopt this notion of a scapegoat because it kind of helps them out, all right? Now, I want to stop here and just kind of point out the perfect example of this um, in the Bible being the prodigal son and the older brother, all right? So think about this in terms of the hero child and the scapegoat. Obviously, the prodigal son is the scapegoat. This is the kid who is like, forget responsibility. I'm not doing that. Give me my money now. I'm going to go off and squander everything I I have, you know, party it up and live to the fullest. All right. And yet the older son is the one who was staying home and being responsible and doing everything he was told. And the reason why the older son, the elder brother was so upset when the prodigal son came home and the father embraced him was because it disrupted this family system of the roles that they had been playing. All right. Everything was fine when the prodigal son was still the screw up. But as soon as he came home and the father embraced him and treated him like the slate was clean, the older brother, the hero, he couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle having the prodigal be on his same playing field because he is known as the hero. The prodigal was the scapegoat. All right. It's interesting to think about scripture in terms of of the different dynamics that we still play out in our world today. Now, the third role that our kids are playing is what's considered the lost child. All right. The lost child. Now, The lost child is the one who is sort of ignored, usually pretty quiet and kind of flies under the radar. Um, This child often connects with animals and can be really, really artistic. Um, But but the, the lost child sort of does his own thing because when it comes down to it, he is absolutely paralyzed by his own feelings. He doesn't know how to express them. 
He feels lonely within the family system. And so for him, it's easier to just sort of retreat and lose himself in this world of creativity or bonding with animals than it is being part of the family system. This child rarely feels heard within the family, and it works for the family because the family thinks, oh, well, this this kid's okay. At least we don't have to worry about him. All right, we have the scapegoat, and that's the one who's blaring me in in your face, kind of the mess up. All right, so the lost child is the one who can just kind of get by doing whatever he wants because he knows how to fly under the radar. But that in itself is a very dysfunctional piece. All right, when I am doing a retreat for for I've done mother daughter retreats in the past, and when I do a retreat for mothers and daughters, I ask both the mother and the daughter, this question. The question is, do you fit in to your family or do you belong? Do you fit in or do you belong? Because there's a really big difference between fitting in with a system, which is just doing what you need to do and going with the flow versus belonging to the system and seeing that you have a very vital role And that without you, the system itself wouldn't work, all right? So that's kind of my question for this lost child mentality of, do you fit in or are you belonging? Because a lost child is going to fit in, but they don't feel like they belong. The fourth one is the mascot, all right? Now, this child is the clown of the family. They are funny and they're going to do anything to make people laugh, which brings a ton of, of just comic relief to the family. All right. So they are the ones who are outgoing and silly. They're usually pretty immature, but they do it in order to get a rise out of people. All right. Now, here's the thing, though. Deep down, the mascot is scared to death because they actually feel horribly inadequate. They feel like they are never going to live up to the hero. They don't want to be labeled as the scapegoat. They don't want to be unseen like the lost child. So by adding humor to the family, the mascot has learned to deal with pain and hurt by trying to make a joke out of it. All right. They hide it with humor. And because of their, their, their sense of immaturity, it actually a lot of times makes it hard for a mascot to end up growing up. They have a hard time accepting responsibility. And yet, on the other hand, the mascot works for the whole family because it, it helps the family avoid any kind of real issues. Because as soon as anything gets super tough or uncomfortable, let's be real, emotions are uncomfortable. They just are. And this is coming from a therapist, all right? Emotions are hard. They're not fun. A lot of times they're really, really uncomfortable. And so the mascot slips into place as soon as these hard emotions come out, they get to step right in and be like, da da da, and they turn everything into a joke. All right. And so the family's attention is then diverted from the real issue and turned into something that's fun and light. And it comes back to very surface level things. All right. So 
I'm coming back to your question now, Mary Ellen and Dan, of how to help your kids step out of certain roles. Now, since your kids are older, the, the first piece of advice that I'd offer is to try to let them handle their own conflict, all right? It is so tempting for us as parents to step in and try to mediate an argument, all right? But when it comes down to it, that's really our stuff, right? That's our fear. That's our fear that our kids are not going to be friends when they get older, that they are going to never speak to each other again. That's our stuff, all right? And what we're doing is preventing them from learning how to resolve conflict, and how to be these adult selves that they need to be by having to deal with uncomfortable situations, okay? So helping them for, be forced to handle their own conflicts and their own, own issues without us coming in and trying to pat everything down and make sure it's okay. Now, I also think it's very helpful and this is why I went through these roles, is for us as parents to ask ourselves the brutally honest question of have we or are we currently pigeonholing our kids into one certain label? Have we pigeonholed a child as the hero or the mascot or the scapegoat? And if we have, what are the steps that we need to take to help the hero not have to be the hero anymore? What are the steps that we need to take to help that hero learn that failing is just as important as succeeding? Or what do we help the mascot with that when they start feeling the feels and you know they're just turning it into a joke, how do we help them step back and say, hang on, I see what you're doing there. You're making a joke out of this, and it's not funny. I know you're hurt, all right? So as parents, what are the ways that we can interject now that we know these different roles in helping our kids alter their, their typical course of the label that they have been, the mold that they have been fit into, all right? Now, I also think it's important for us to be able to demonstrate for our kids what healthy boundaries look like, all right? So when I'm working with parents, I say all the time, listen, it is okay for your child to be angry. It is okay for them to be sad. It is okay for your child to be mad at you. All of those things are perfectly okay. That's actually very healthy, all right? What's not okay is when they are experiencing those emotions that they are being disrespectful, the emotion is very okay. It's very normal. The disrespect, that's what's not okay. All right? It is not okay for you to roll your eyes at me, to change your tone of voice, to stomp off when I'm speaking to you. That's not okay. And if it's not okay for you to treat me like that, it's also not okay for you to treat your siblings like this. All right. So what we have to do is to demonstrate what a healthy boundary looks like, that I will not tolerate you disrespecting me as a person, and I will not tolerate you disrespecting your siblings because they are people too. I come back to Ephesians. Ephesians 6 talks about fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. 
All right. And that's kind of what this is, is going into. Don't provoke your children to anger. What provokes anger is when boundaries have been violated. When boundaries are not clearly set out and they're fluid and they're changing, that's a very confusing thing for a child. So if at one time we tolerate them disrespecting us and talking back to us, and then the next time they do it and we totally flip out on them, that's an unhealthy boundary. That's a very confusing place for a child to be. So as parents, our job is to set what we have decided are our boundaries And then very consistently as possible, we're all going to mess up. We're all going to mess up. But as consistently as possible, maintain those boundaries so that our kids are not provoked to anger and that they're not provoking others to anger as well. Our next question is from Joanne in Seattle. Joanne writes, Alice, I am at my wits end. I have three boys, ages 9, 12, and 14, who are polar opposites in so many ways. With this quarantine, they are forced to spend a whole lot of time together, which they usually don't do. I'm a single mom working from home, supervising their online learning, and trying to keep them from clobbering each other. All I really want is for them to love each other as much as I love them. Please help. How do I help my children love each other? Well, Joanne, I think that that's sort of a million-dollar question that every parent longs for and wrestles with. And I think my first thought is if you find somebody who tells you that they have the answer to that, they are selling you something, and you need to run for the hills, all right? Because ultimately, only the Holy Spirit can change our child's hearts to help them love each other. We are sinners, and we are not loving by our own sin nature. We're not. And that's why we needed Christ to love us first, to pursue us first, because our selfishness and our pride, it wasn't going to happen on our own will. And the same is true for, for our kids, and I think that this is where a lot of our faith has to come into practice, where we have to trust that the Holy Spirit is working in our kids' lives even when we don't see it and we don't feel it, but we can trust that as we pray for our kids and we continue to hang with them and guide them, that the Holy Spirit is working through that. Now, I do think it's helpful on a practical day-to-day basis to understand maybe a little bit about what's going on with your three boys and helping them understand just what they, they may be experiencing when it comes to their basic birth order. Um, you know, the, notion, the whole notion of birth order started out because of the firstborn child, that the firstborn child would um, have received all of the inheritance and the family's wealth, but he also was, had the responsibility of taking care of all of the younger siblings, all right? So that's kind of how the idea of, of birth order came to be. And It's a controversial topic because some people think, oh, this is just nothing. This makes no sense. But for the most part, there are there are some pretty widely accepted norms when it comes to birth order. So, Joanne, I want to camp out here for a second just to shed some light on what I think may also be happening within your boys, too. All right. Now, I will say this, too. 
your boys are close together. So for other families who have kids that are spaced apart, when it comes to birth order, they consider five years being the family. All right. So if you have maybe two children who were born two years apart and then a surprise child eight years later, that would be past that five-year point. And so that last child would be considered an only child, not a youngest child. Okay. So as long as the kids are within five years apart, these are the the accepted norms for how a birth order is going to fall into play. Okay. Now, we also know that just by having siblings in the home, that in itself can affect a child's development. That sibling support has, has been shown, as, especially as adults, to help buffer against problems with depression and self-esteem and anxiety. All right. So regardless of the birth order or whether or not your kids fall into this typical set, um, just having kids in the home can be very impactful on a child's life. Now, when it comes to an only child who doesn't have siblings in the home, having other children who are close friends or cousins, that can act as that sibling piece to help in adult life, um, in in emotional uh, transitioning in adult life, all right? Now, I think it's also really interesting to note when it comes to birth order that a parent's birth order can really strongly affect the relationship with the child, all right? So for instance, I am a youngest child. So it is easy for me to identify with my youngest son. That when my older son is picking on him or being a punk, it's super easy for me to jump right in and start defending the youngest. And I think it's because I am a youngest and I remember what that was like to have older siblings always telling me what to do. All right. So I think we have to recognize that there's that piece to it too, but also that the opposite can be true, that a a firstborn child raised by a firstborn mother and a firstborn father may actually rebel against being a firstborn and act like a youngest. And then the youngest would take on the characteristics of the firstborn, all right? So I tell you all this because there are not any hard and fast rules to how this is going to go. But I do think that it's helpful for us to understand what we can expect as a, as a general term from each of our kids, all right? So in thinking about our firstborn child, typically firstborns are, are better in school. Um, some reports even suggest that they have a higher IQ than other uh, siblings. And the thought behind that is that the younger siblings have had less one-on-one time with the parents. Um, and so they have the parents have fewer financial resources to spend on them, and therefore they have had less um, time and attention spent on them. And therefore, the oldest child had sort of an, an academic and a social advantage toward the other siblings. Uh, We also know that the firstborn is typically more motivated to um, fulfill any kind of parent expectations. They tend to be more responsible. They want to follow the rules. They are often much more perfectionist. Um, They are usually reliable, and and they are the conscientious ones. They are really good at at making lists and staying well-organized. They are the ones who are the, the natural-born leaders, they can be more critical. They can be more serious, all right? All of these things, and, and 
the firstborn child often takes on the responsibility for the younger children, all right? So it's really interesting as leaders as they are, firstborns tend to grow up being more caring than the other siblings because they have had to nurture the younger siblings, all right? We also know that firstborns are more willing to become parents because they've already kind of been a parent. They already know what that's like, all right? Um, They are much more likely to take initiative. And we have also found that firstborns tend to be more honest and more dominant than the other siblings, all right? However, firstborns are typically much, much less resistant to stress, all right? So they are doing really, really well as long as life is going how they expect it to go. But as soon as the wheels fall off, it is just a mess, all right? And so a firstborn has a hard time resisting stress when things are not predictable and structured, all right? I think about this um, when, when in thinking about uh, biblical siblings, I think about this as Martha. Think about Martha from the Bible. She, we don't know for sure what birth art order Mary and Martha were in Lazarus too, but more than likely, Martha was a firstborn, all right? She was the one who got the job done. She knew how to host. She knew how to take care of people. She was on top of it. She was the leader of that group. All right. And so very likely Martha is the one, at least between Mary and Martha, to exemplify what a firstborn would look like. All right. Now, I also think we have to factor in twins. You know, how, how does that work? If, if a parent only has twins, are they both firstborn? Are they first and second? Now, Unfortunately, there's not a ton of research that's been done on twins, but most experts agree that twins will sort of organize themselves within the family. Um, And so whether you have to do it or not, or whether they literally came out of the womb first or second, usually twins will try to figure out and kind of do it themselves of who's going to act like the oldest and who's going to act like the youngest. And interestingly, Twins go through seasons where they tend to alternate who is going to be an oldest and who's going to act like a youngest. So interesting note with twins. Now, when it comes to a middle child, all right, so thinking about your 12-year-old, Joanne, your middle child is typically considered the forgotten child, all right? Sounds terrible, but it's actually very true. They seem to receive sort of less from the parents, the, the firstborn is usually in the spotlight. They're the first ones to get to um, try out for baseball, and they are the first ones to go to kindergarten and that kind of thing. The middle child, yeah, it's like we've been there and done that, and the youngest child is usually the cute one. We're going to get to that. But that middle child a lot of times is sort of the forgotten child. However, that makes them more independent, which a lot of times makes them more inclined to develop relationships with people who are outside of the family. Because of that independence, they are very, very loyal to their peers, including their siblings, but they're usually very adaptable. They're very common, the peacemaker. They're the ones who want everything to be smooth. Let's all get along. A lot of times they are much less selfish than their other siblings, 
Um, And they always score higher on their sense of agreeableness and their extroversion. It's interesting, huh? Again, that leads to those relationships outside of the family, that a lot of times that middle child is more extroverted than the others. And as adults, we know that the middle child, they tend to take on more pro-social stances when it comes to politicals, uh, political issues and civil rights issues, things like that. And so as children, that makes them so much more in tuned to relationships and making sure everybody is okay and everything is treated fairly. So the middle child is going to be very concerned with how everybody else is, um, is handling a situation, all right? They tend to be pretty ambitious. So middles typically like to set unreasonably high goals for themselves. But the problem with that is that a lot of times that actually increases the number of failures that they experience, all right? Because they set these crazy high goals for themselves, they're going to fail a lot more commonly than other siblings would. However, if they learn how to handle that failure, and because of their adaptability, they're usually able to cope with life difficulties even more effectively than the other siblings. Pretty interesting, isn't it? All right. So that's what we consider the middle child. Now, the youngest child is the the key word for a youngest child is charming. Charming. All right. I, we have some dear family friends, and um, their youngest daughter is the queen of charming. She will just look at you, and you will melt. Oh, my word. She can just crawl up in your lap, and just the way she giggles and prances around, oh, my goodness, she is the epitome of charming. That is a perfect example of a youngest child. They are usually very outgoing and fun and sociable. They're just wide open to new experiences. We do know that the youngest child, though, typically is more pampered than the others, all right, which makes sense because they have a whole lot of moms and dads in their lives. But we also know that the youngest child is a lot of times more rebellious than the others, all right? I I will say this as pure confession. As I've said before, I am a youngest child, and youngest children are also known for being manipulative. I could totally own that. I would, especially as a child, I remember, remember, like have conscious vivid memories of how I could manipulate a situation to either where I wasn't at fault or I could get my way, or I could turn on the tears, and then people would feel bad for me. But I can tell you that as a youngest child, we can be really, really good at manipulation, all right? We are typically very bad at taking ownership of when we screw up, all right? We are really good at blaming other people, and we typically have an excuse for everything that we've done, or a reason why something happened or um, why something didn't go right or why we forgot something, all right? So youngest children are typically going to have a hard time taking ownership of the things that we they screw up on, all right? Now, a lot of times they are attention seekers and they can be salespeople and very engaging and affectionate, all right? So the youngest child is is going to be able to read others very, very well. Um, a lot of times they're very caring and they want to help. They're 
super easy to talk to, but uh, because they get a, a lot of care and attention from the other parents and even the older siblings, that can lead to them feeling less experienced and less independent, all right? However, this is interesting. As adults, even though they have less independence as a child, the lastborns are usually highly motivated to surpass their older brothers and sisters, and they actually very often achieve pretty big success and can earn recognition in their own chosen field. So they become the fastest athletes or the best musicians or the most talented artists. Um, the youngest in the family is, is very sociable, though they're likely to be more irresponsible and frivolous than the older children, all right? So coming back to the Mary and Martha example, you know where I'm going with this, that a lot of times Mary would exemplify this youngest child mentality. She is much more interested in the relationship than she was at the task at hand in living in the moment, all right? So she was very intrigued by that. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I mean, even Jesus said, be more like Mary, but there's also a time and a place where I think that the Marthas can appreciate getting a job done. The Marys are the ones who are more invested in the moment, and um, they they really care so much more about the relationship than actually getting a job completed, all right? Now, I have not forgotten about you only children out there, all right? So for you only children, here's the thing with onlys. You are typically very confident, all right? Having grown up around more adults, only children tend to be more mature for their age. They are typically very conscientious and they are responsible. They are oftentimes very perfectionistic, all right? They like to be the center of attention, but because of that, not always as agreeable as other birth order siblings, all right? So a lot of times only children try to seek approval um, and they're usually very, very sensitive to getting their feelings hurt, all right? But we know that only children are usually the most creative out of all of the sibling birth orders in the, in the mix, all right? Most creative, all right? So I'm coming back to you, Joanne. Now, I think that it's great to understand more deeply where each child is coming from, all right? But how to answer that question of how can we help them love each other more? Like I said before, I think that that's a million-dollar questions. But one of my favorite things to do is to work with siblings in my office, all right? I love having two sisters or a brother and a sister or two brothers come in my office, and we start uh, exploring what each other's strengths are and what each other's stretches are, all right? Their strengths and their stretches. And it's so cool when we can start to get siblings to see that, actually, I need you to, because you're really good at this, but I'm really good at that. And if we can work together, we can make a really big power team. All right. I love that when, when they can start to see, I think about it like an orchestra, that the orchestra needs the violins, but we also need the saxophones. We need that oldest child, but we also need that youngest child. All right. And once we can work together, then the music can be complete and it can be beautiful because we're able to, sh to draw off of each other's strengths, all right? 
I heard some of the best advice that I had when I first um, started, when I was pregnant with my second child. I had a friend tell me to tell my kids from day one, which I did, and I'm very grateful for, you are each other's best friends. You are each other's best friends. All right. Now, listen, when my kids are in the heat of a fight and I say that to them, you better believe I get a serious like, no, that's not true. He's not my best friend. Okay, so I get it. But I'm going to keep saying that line to them over and over and over again. You are each other's best friends. And never would I have dreamt that they would literally be each other's only friends during a quarantine situation but it truly helped prove my point in a way that I never dreamed it would possibly be. But coming back to that, you are each other's best friends. I truly believe that the Lord created siblings to help us with adversity. Look at Proverbs 17, 17. It says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Think about that. Think about how Miriam watched over Moses at the Nile River. That was a very adverse time. Think about how Joseph, even though his his brothers had sold him into slavery, think about how Joseph spared his family from starvation. I know, y'all, I know we don't see it now, but siblings can be the best advocates for each other. It just may not happen until adversity really hits. But I think that it's helping with the adversities that they're experiencing now, whether it's they both want to play basketball at the same time or they want to watch different shows on TV. Siblings were born for adversity. And enduring these adversities now, these fights that our kids are going through now, I truly believe that is going to align them to help with the adversities that they face in the future, whether it's death or illness or financial distress. Siblings can help endure adversity together because they've gone through these fights as kids. All right. I am so comforted at the, the verse about training up a child in the way he should go and when he, will old, when he is old, he will not depart from it. I really am comforted by that because like I said before, I feel like I'm, I'm in this boat with you, all right? My kids don't always get along. We do have some great moments. And then we have an hour later, you know, all you know what has just broken loose again, okay? And so we're in this together, but I'm so comforted that If we can continue to stay the course, train up a child in the way he should go, train up a child in the way she should go, keep going, keep going, even when we don't feel like it, even when it's hard, I believe our role as parents is to lean in. There are so many times when my kids are fighting and all I want to do is throw up my hands and run out the door and get out of there. But I have an opportunity with my kids in this time of quarantine while they're young, while they're still with me, I can lean in. 
And that means me tolerating this discomfort of fight and tension and the adversity that strikes us now, knowing that it can help us endure adversity in the future. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Ask Alice. We love hearing from you. So if you have any questions for us, please feel free to email us at askalice at rootedministry.com. Y'all have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ask Alice, part of the Rooted Network family of podcasts. For more resources designed to equip and encourage you to faithfully disciple students towards lifelong faith in Jesus Christ, be sure to find Rooted on the internet at www.rootedministry.com.